Hello, and welcome to You Should Hear This, a podcast for the everyday association professional. I'm Nick Estrada, your host. Every association has one thing in common, and that's the love and gratitude that we share for our volunteers. They assist associations by pushing forward their missions and visions for their members. And in recent years, volunteers have reevaluated their time and what means most to them. Volunteer participation and engagement have dropped drastically since then, and they still continue to be on the decline. What is it then that we as association professionals can do when it comes to recruiting and retaining our volunteers? Is it the way we interact, how we're selling the experience, or is it something else? Our guests today will be able to help us explore this conversation. Brian Lewis, CAE, CVA with Raven Group International serves as the executive director for a few small staff clients. He discovered his interest in association management about 20 years ago as a volunteer for a number of his own adult fraternal organizations. He feels that his volunteer involvement is important professionally as a way to see things from the volunteer perspective, and it provides opportunities to try out new things on a small scale. Katie Feltman, CAE, serves as COO for the American College of Sports Medicine, overseeing their operations, programs, and services, which include membership, certification, publishing, technology, science initiatives, grant administration, and key programmatic areas. Katie has a servant leader mindset, finding joy in helping her colleagues succeed and seeing ACSM's members and certifieds thrive. Welcome, Brian and Katie. How are you? Good. Doing well today, Nick. Thank you. Good. Well, we are so happy to have you guys here today. You know, we were talking a little bit ago before we started today's podcast, right? Volunteerism, I think, just continues to be something that we are all talking about. Um, and that I think is a, a really important topic that we continue to focus on um, as we look towards the future for our associations. But before we get into the nitty gritty, do do each of you just mind sharing a little bit about your own association journey, how you've gotten to where you are today? And I think we might start with Katie, if that's okay. Sure. Thanks, Nick. Super happy to be here with both of you today. Um, I worked for a large educational and scientific publisher for many years, and then an opportunity came up for me to move to the American College of Sports Medicine in 2012, where for eight years I served in a capacity um, overseeing our publishing portfolio as well as our other content initiatives, including education. Um, I was moved into the COO role in October of 2021 when our new chief executive officer, Kristen Bellison, started. And I really, for me, moving into the association world was incredibly rewarding. I learned my trade um, at a for-profit company and the passion um, I have for volunteerism, both personally as well as helping others do it professionally, really translated when I was able to kind of get off the for-profit merry-go-round and um, get into an association world where really we are powered by that of our volunteers and our members. And so I'm just incredibly fortunate to have the role that I have and, and be working in this capacity to, to just help our members and our associations thrive um, around our volunteers. So happy to be here today. Thanks, Nick. Right. So my story starts with my dad uh, has been a Freemason my entire life, and I never had any interest in joining my dad's old people club uh, (laughs) until I I turned about, I think, 21, 22, and I started meeting people who were younger. And that was when I met Tim Murphy, who uh, gave me a very compelling uh, sales pitch on why I needed to join. And after I joined, it just happened. I ended up being Tim's VP the year he was head of my lodge. And I can remember us sitting down at a bar, shocking, and talking strategic planning and Tim saying, you've got a really good instinct at this. You should look at doing this as a career. And I'm like, 
doing what as a career? Like, what are we talking about? And that was my first inclination that association management was even a thing. And at that point, I started looking into it and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is cool. And I like doing this stuff as a volunteer. And now you'll pay me to do it. And then it just happened about 10 years after that, after the Great Recession, there was an opening at Rayborn Group I applied for. And next thing you know, I've been here 10 years and running a couple clients. It's been great. But that volunteer background has always skipped and they've always been my uh, experimental ground for any ideas I have. Yeah, I think you guys both bring such an interesting perspective to this conversation, right? So Brian, obviously, as a volunteer leader yourself, and then shifting to that side, and and I would agree, Katie, right, taking from the the for-profit side, and then coming into the nonprofit where, wow, there's a lot of people who are like, really, they want this thing to succeed, and they're willing to give of their own time for no no pay, <laughs> right? And so I see, we think we see both sides of that, which I, I think is is exciting. So we are going to start, I think, maybe a, a little bit on the negative here. And then we're going to work our way up to um, some hopefulness for our listeners today. But if anyone was able to join us at ICON this summer, you know, we shared a little bit of information on um, some research from Wharton Marketing and research on the impact of association sectors on state economies, specifically regarding volunteerism. Um, You know, obviously, again, as we've mentioned, right, volunteering is such an important component to a lot of our associations, yet from 2014 to 2022, nationally, we saw the number of volunteers for nonprofit associations drop by about 56%. Um, So I think in uh, 2014, associations typically had a little bit over 200 folks that were volunteering, and now we're under 100 um, in terms of where we are, which a hundred still a lot of people. Like I, I don't want to pretend that that's not, but right, that's a pretty significant drop. Um, so for the both of you, where where do you think is what's causing this? Is this the pandemic? Right? Is is COVID the cause of our volunteer engagement? Is this something that's been going on a lot longer? Um, where where are you kind of landing on what's been impacting this decline? So my first thought is, I don't think it's all COVID, and it's obviously if it started in 2014, but I definitely think COVID is the accelerator. I think we would have ended up where we're at no matter what, but we've gotten there a whole lot quicker. I think a big challenge that we're facing is I'm seeing in all the research, the generation gaps are becoming a lot shorter. And as a result, I think we have to change faster. And that's really hard because we're all so busy. So a lot of our volunteer opportunities look today like they did 10 years ago, and that's not interesting to the younger generations. And it's really hard. I think it's a big challenge to keep adapting so we're appealing to new generations. Brian, you nailed it. Um, And I think we make jokes about it, but associations are notoriously slow to change. And that really impedes our ability to keep up when those we want to have engaged with us in a volunteer capacity, we're not changing at the pace that they need us to. And I believe that that is at the crux of this. Um, We're not creating enough different opportunities. We're not creating micro and macro opportunities. I'm not sure that associations have taken the step to make these opportunities seem like they are for everyone and not just maybe the two percenters of the organization. And so it is, it is a, pressing challenge for many reasons, not the least of which our boards rely on these volunteers, but for many associations, 
these volunteers are truly the lifeblood of the revenue generating activities, um, such as publications, such as programming of meetings. And so not only does this present a retention and recruitment challenge for membership, but it also creates, it, it puts revenue streams at, at risk to bring it back to that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, right, when we think about like an annual conference, right, you typically have a lot of your volunteers helping to drive the selection of your sessions, because at the end of the day, right, we're association professionals, we are not industry experts, unless you've been in your industry, you know, maybe for 10, 15 years, but even then, right, you're not doing it every day, you're not keeping up with all the changes. And so we rely on our volunteers often as our content experts for a lot of things. And so for losing those people, I think we're losing a really significant component of what we need to best serve our members. As we think about, you know, just kind of some of the the mistakes maybe we've been making over the last decade or so when it comes to volunteerism, you know, what are you guys seeing? Um, what needs, you know, Brian, you mentioned and, and Katie as well, right, that we're, we're slow to change sometimes, but, you know, what are some of the things maybe that are holding us back when we're trying to make some of those big changes um, that if we could just get over that, that could help us? I mean, one big problem is just time, having the time to reevaluate your volunteer opportunities. Some of it's just even realizing, hey, we need to we need to reevaluate this frequently. Sure, we've always had a membership committee. Do we still need one? Is it still doing something productive? And I think a lot of this stuff is on autopilot. Thankfully, a lot of associations are getting rid of having like all these standing committees in their bylaws. So it's easier to get rid of them. But even then, tradition can be just as hard as the rules to break it. We've always had this. Well, yeah, but it's not producing anything anymore. Let's try something different. Mm-hmm. I agree with Brian. Um, and I would also say that I believe we need to start to change to look. We were discussing earlier what define what engagement means for our volunteers. And it's not going to look the same for everyone. And so we really need to look at personas of our members and understand what engagement means for them. And then make sure that we have volunteer opportunities that fit those various personas. Right now, depending on what it is, for a lot of associations, for someone to join a board and then ultimately progress to a vice president or a president or another officer, that can become upwards of a eight to 10 year commitment. And these are busy professionals who do not have the time. And so I think as associations, we need to pause and take the time to really understand what does engagement mean to our different members, um, whether it's professional, generational differences, and then make sure that we are creating and communicating about those opportunities. I think that's a really good point because we spend more time like with membership trying to figure out what the benefits are because it's revenue generating. We want to get members in. We spend a lot less time thinking, well, what do our volunteers want to get out of this? Or what do our volunteers want to contribute to the association? And how can we adapt what we're doing to fit their needs? And a lot of times we don't spend much time on that. Yeah, I feel like sometimes we spend more time thinking about what we can get from a volunteer, right? Versus what we can give to them for their time, right? Because it becomes, we'll talk about this, I think a little bit later, right? We are finding gaps in what we can provide as staff. And so we're using them to do some of the work, right? We need bodies to do it. Um, And so we find things that are really beneficial for us, but not necessarily always so much for them. 
you know, okay, so we're kind of this concept of, you know, things are changing, right? We've mentioned generational shifts. Are there other shifts, though, that you think are in place right now that if an association is not thinking about how those are changing the landscape of volunteering, it's going to make it hard for them to keep up? I do. I Great question, Nick. And I believe we pay a lot of attention to extrinsic motivation for volunteer engagement and motivations. And while that is a positive, and we need to make sure that we keep our eye on that, I think we've not really paid enough attention to intrinsic motivations, which is the why. Why does somebody choose to do that? When I think about the way I engage with my volunteer activities, it's it's less about adding to my resume sometimes and more making sure that I feel some sort of connection or passion to whatever it is that organization or group might be doing. And I I believe, I don't want to say that associations have taken that for granted, but I think we just haven't built that into our outreach and our communications and really structuring these opportunities. And so that would be something I think all associations really need to be thinking about. Brian, anything else to add, do you think? I just think that that's a really good point because I, and I think that goes back to, we just don't really understand our volunteers motivation well, or we make a lot of assumptions on why they're volunteering without really digging into not just what are they getting out of it, but what do they want to give back? Um, Because I do find most people really are doing it because they want they either want to share their information or they want to share their experience or they want to give back to their industry. And we're, we are, like you said, we're focused on what are they getting out of it? And they really aren't looking to get anything out of it. They're looking to give back. Yeah. I like that, uh, that concept a lot. Katie, you mentioned, you know, kind of this eight to 10 year, um, some of sometimes for some of our leadership positions, right? Like, especially, and I would say, I might be making a, an overgeneralization here, but I feel like for strong academic groups, <laughs> we see a lot of long tenure needed to be able to rise to the top ranks, right? And even for really old organizations, right? There can only be so many presidents over the number of years that a group has been in existence. And so, uh, you know, I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on this, but one of the things I think we've potentially made a mistake on is not relooking at the length of some of our volunteer opportunities, you know, even some of our smaller state associations, I think, wow, if I want to be the the chair or the president of that organization, I have to give four or five years alone, right? I've got to be a vice president and then a president-elect, and then I've got to be the president, and then I've got to be a past president. And is that model going to continue to work for us, you think, in the future for all of our volunteers? I mean, the flexibility, we've got to figure out how to be more flexible about this stuff especially when you're talking about industries where there's a lot of mobility or you're talking about a geographical. So if you're a state association and your president-elect moves out of state, you know, that happens. I just had a situation where one of my officers took a job in industry and is no longer qualified for membership. So, you know, that kind of stuff is happening there. And it varies, obviously, you know, profession to profession. Some professions, people are going to stay there for for the duration. But there's other ones where we have so much mobility that we've got to be flexible. and We've got to really concentrate on our pipeline because all of a sudden, a couple people drop out and we're trying to fill holes. And if we don't have a, a good volunteer pool to pull from, we're really struggling. 
I, I agree, Brian. And I, the other element here is, I believe there's a common thread among individuals who join membership associations. They, they're interested in professional development. They're interested in professional excellence. There are times when their position requires it if there's licensing and there's some you know, related certification. But that said, these are motivated individuals, which means they're going to be busy. Um, and so depending on where they are in their career, they may not have the time. And so we need to really dig in and understand someone might want to be engaged, but maybe it's just contributing to a blog. Maybe it's not an eight-year commitment. The other element here that we're starting to see, at least on the science side, is particularly within the academic and the research areas, you know, all of these diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are so incredibly important. However, it is putting undue burden on the minorities in these institutions. And so these are the individuals who are already the minorities and they are repeatedly being asked to join boards, research groups, IRBs, this faculty program, that faculty program. And, and I believe we've gotta be sensitive to that and find ways to make sure that we are addressing that without putting undue burden um, particularly for some of these more demanding roles. And so I think that along with where people are in their career, which speaks to what you mentioned, Brian, if somebody changes or they move out of state, somebody early career is going to have less time than a tenured academic who has a little bit more flexibility in their schedule, which really then speaks to us making sure that we are finding micro and macro opportunities for people to get engaged, learn about the organization in a way that isn't being, you know, on a board consistently for eight years straight. That's a really interesting point. Um, another thing is to think about is when you have like these eight-year, you know, progressive commitments, you get people who come in at the beginning and they're super gung-ho, they've got the time, they've got the energy, they're doing great. And then by the time they get near the top, they've run out of gas or life has changed. And so while they were a really good committee chair, really good board member, by the time they become president, they're just not into it anymore. And you get some really, you know, you have some issues there. I haven't seen as much on my professional side as my fraternal side. We see it all the time where it's just seven years, eight years, 10 years is a long time. And by the time you get to the top, it's like, oh, I've been doing this for eight, nine years. I'm just, I'm not into it anymore. I, that, that's, I mean, that's a really serious issue. I mean, I think we talk about burnout a lot among staff, but I'm not sure we really think about it for our volunteers. And particularly if it's industries or associations where there's a lot of turmoil, um, for one reason or another. And I'm not sure that we really think about the the impact or the consequences that has on these volunteer leaders. Obviously, it's not all negative, right? We've <laughs> we've we've made some good shifts. we've We've tried some new things over the last you know decade, I'm sure, right? So I'm curious from both of your perspectives, are you able to share, maybe some successes um, that you've had in changing up volunteer processes or approaching volunteerism in a new way. And then also just what additional, you know, we just talked about all these challenges, right? But if we were to address some of those challenges, what are some opportunities that you think we could see in the realm of volunteerism? 
that's, I think there's, for all of the uh, negativism, I think there are a lot of positive things on the horizon. One of the areas where um, the American College of Sports Medicine has had um, a really nice impact on our volunteerism is with our mentoring programs. I believe people want to feel connected. They want to feel part of a community. And that really helps with the intrinsic motivation when it comes down to, I'm going to have to be on a call at 8 p.m. at night. I'm going to have to be away at a meeting. I'm going to have to spend eight hours on a Zoom board meeting. And truly, if they get to know people and develop personal connections, it's incredibly rewarding to spend time with those individuals. And so I believe mentoring programs while they may superficially be focused a lot on recruitment and retention, they actually have a lot of impact with our volunteers and both on the mentor and the mentee. Our mentors, these are great volunteer opportunities and the mentors find them to be incredibly rewarding. My, my first thought is I think there's reasons to stay optimistic. I know with one of my groups, the average age of our board has dropped a lot recently. There are a lot of young professionals who do want to give back and do want to be part of that positive change. So I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I would say one of the big keys is just embracing and leveraging technology. You know, for as bad as COVID was, we learned we can do things virtual. I think that's a huge plus for younger professionals people at geographic disadvantages. It, it just makes it easier to bring people together. And even not just on a board level, a lot of talk about like volunteer orientations, how, you know, groups used to bring everybody together and do these big, long seminars. And now we either can do it on Zoom or heck, we can just record it and they can watch it whenever they have time. So I think that's, again, where we just got to think about what we're doing in a different way and try to make it as convenient as possible. But the technology is there. We just have to use it. Yeah, with these, you know, so obviously, as we put forth these new opportunities, right, expectations are going to change of our volunteers. Um, Brian, you just mentioned, right, technology. I think that does provide a lot of new opportunities to engage folks. Um, but like I said, I think that comes as well with some new expectations around technology. So we record something and we send it to you. We expect that you watch it, right? How do I know if you've watched it? Um, I, I, I know sometimes we see this with boards, right? We we send out that big packet of information before a board meeting. How do I know you actually read it, right? Um, so as we shift these components or we make these new opportunities, how do we also make sure that we're holding our volunteers accountable? And I think that accountability has also changed, right? It looked a lot different 10 years ago uh, than it likely looks today. And it will likely look different in 10 years from now as we continue to think through some of the things that you've both brought up. So what's your what's your thought process on how accountability needs to either change or if it even if it is staying the same, how do we how do we maximize accountability for? these volunteers, right, who are not actually getting paid to do anything, they're doing this out of the goodness of their own heart. And, you know, we talk about that a lot. Our volunteer leaders, depending on the size of the association, range from high-level board to extensions of truly of staff. And it's always the very strange dynamic of asking someone to do something and then holding them accountable if they're late or it's not the way it should be when they're not being paid. And that is the ongoing dance association staff have to perfect or attempt to perfect at all times. But I actually believe that volunteers, and I feel this way about my own volunteer activities, 
I am more motivated when I understand the goals and outcomes of what it is I'm doing, and then I can see progress. And so I believe accountability can be built into clear communications and goals, KPIs, and sharing in the progress of those goals, right? So if you've got a membership group, a task force working on retention, go back to them after their recommendations have been implemented and say, here are the KPIs and the progress. And so in some ways, it's a it's a it's the KISS keep it simple concept, but set some goals and and engage those volunteers in the success of those goals. You know, Katie, not to jump in too quickly here, Brian, but it's interesting you say that because I can share from my own personal experience, right? We I have a membership engagement task force, right? Like a lot of groups probably have a membership group, and um, over the last couple of years, the uh, we have not from the board level set like a strategic goal for the number of members, and and I'm not saying there has to be a strategic goal for like a specific number or a percentage increase, right? But we really didn't say anything. We just said like membership should grow, <laughs> and I think our engagement group was like in what way, to what level, like we need an end goal to help determine if we're being successful. Otherwise it just feels like we're doing stuff, but we don't know if it's impacting anything. You know, same with some of our certification stuff as well. Like what is it we're trying to achieve? And so I think that that's really interesting that you bring that up for volunteers. They also want to see what that end goal is. They want to know what that, that guidepost is so that they can see that information and they can see the work that they're doing actually moves them to something. Well, Katie, you stole my answer, so that must mean it's a, a brilliant answer. Um, <laughs> but it is—it's interesting. I was at a meeting of volunteer administrators just yesterday, and I asked this exact question because I feel like this is my biggest challenge. And the answer was very similar: it's job description, it's information, information, information. What are you getting in front of them? Do they know what they're supposed to do? And are you continuing reiterating it? And then communication—lots of communication. If there's a problem, don't let it linger, communicate. When things are going well, communicate. And just staying on top of that. And so it is, it's the information, the communication, basically what you said. I think that those are the keys to it because because they're volunteers, you can't make them do it. So you just got to make sure they know the expectations and communicate those and uh, have a plan. So if they aren't performing that you can pull them out and put somebody else in. Yeah, Brian, do you have recommendations though on how you do that, right? When it when it gets to the point where I've communicated all the expectations, we've had conversations multiple times about the things you're supposed to be doing, how do you actually say you're out? That's super hard and it depends on personalities and the individual. The one the one key I will say on that is I feel very strongly we always need to give our volunteers an out because life changed, things come up, they get busy, things happen. And we need to give them an out where they can save face. Um, so even if it's just an email, say, hey, I noticed you haven't gotten to this. Is everything going okay? Getting busy at work. Do I need to find someone to help you? Can I help you? Stuff like that. Giving them a way to say, oh yeah, work just got really busy. I don't think I can do this anymore. We hate losing volunteers, but on the other hand, if we keep pushing them and they can't do it, that's even worse than getting them to resign or drop out of that position. At least if you gave them a, a way to get out and save face, you can bring them back later. But, you know, you've got to give them that out because, you know, they're volunteering. 
I, it, I um, agree 100% um, with both of you. It, it is a sticky wicket if you've got a volunteer that's not performing. And, and it really affects morale of everyone. It puts staff in an awkward position. The other, you know, if it's a task force or committees, it frustrates the peers. And so that that is also part of the awkwardness of the dance that we do. I love the giving them an out and letting them save face and letting them make the decision and, and really telling them it's okay. Because at the end of the day, that's going to leave everybody feeling better about the outcome. You kind of leaned into something there, Brian. I think there's a good transition to our next kind of topic, which is this, you know, especially over the last couple of years, I think association staffs have seen a reduction in their own staff, right? And so that means we've got these gaps of things that need to get done. And I think, again, the initial immediate response is, we'll just find a volunteer to do it, right? They'll just take care of that for us. But I think that hits a little bit on this accountability piece, because, right, if eventually they're not doing it, staff can't do it. What What's the appropriate way then to approach these? And even Katie, actually going back real quick, you mentioned, right, sometimes volunteers are almost an extension of our staff. And so how do we make the distinction of what is realistically something that a volunteer can do and something that even though the conversation might be difficult, we might actually have to go back to our board and say, if you want this thing to happen, if you want this resource or this program or this service, we're going to need to invest resources and staff, right? Because eventually it's going to have to happen. If we can't hold a volunteer accountable to make it happen, but it's really important for the association, here's what that conversation is going to look like. Nick, I think you hit on a good point there is at what point do we say we don't have the resources and go back to board and say, you know, we're going to have to make a decision. Either we're going to do A or we're going to do B, but we can't do both. I kind of want to answer your question with another question. And it's what what do the volunteers want to do? And if they don't want to do it, why? Like if we can't find someone to help out with Project A, why don't they want to do it? And is this kind of our canary in the coal mine that Mm. this project, this initiative might have run its course because it's not always the case, but I am seeing in a lot of spots when the volunteers start petering out, it's an indicate it's an early indication that the members aren't far behind in not caring about that anymore. I, I agree. And I think it, it's the ongoing it, again, back to the conversation about change. Change is hard. It takes time. It takes hours to figure it out. There, there are always governance pitfalls and pathways that have to be navigated. But if we're not changing all of these systems, what Brian just noted is going to happen. And so part of this is just making sure that we are very clearly outlining what the strategic priorities are, making sure we understand what are needed to execute on the key ones. And then in the cases where things are critical, we we do need to go to our boards and ask for resources or at least say this will not be executed in the timeline or according to the status or standards that we set um, if we are not sort of treating this in a way that's different. And so part of this is also just prioritization. And so that's not to say that volunteers don't do an excellent job, but I think it's getting to the point where they may be as taxed as staff and so th- there just has to be a balance. And, and maybe in, in many of these cases, it's um, the, the route is to just outsource it completely. 
maybe we add staff or maybe you bring on a consultant to do it. But this really, it's the full circle of the staff and the volunteers working together and making sure that the resources are being allocated to what has been prioritized. The word prioritize pops out to me. With one of my fraternal groups, we had to have a really direct conversation a few months ago about, here's all the stuff we've been doing. Here's all the stuff we say we want to do, but what are people willing to do? Like, who is willing to make this happen? And if no one's willing to make it happen, that's fine. That's It's, it's not the end of the world, but let's not try to do okay at a bunch of stuff. Let's do really good at a couple things that we can focus on. And we kind of had to cut back on some stuff because I don't know that much we lost volunteers. We've just, people don't have as much time and they just lost a little energy and we just can't do what we used to do. Yeah. And Kay, I really like your, your concept of kind of that intermediary ground, right. Of maybe it's not a full staff person. Maybe it's not a volunteer. Maybe it's, let's just send this out to some contractor who is not a full part of our team. Right. But we can still hold accountable. I think that, right. If we, as we go back to this accountability piece, right. It is hard to keep a volunteer accountable. It's really easy, hopefully, uh, right. To keep some kind of a contractor accountable because you have a contract, right. You have something that says, these are the deliverables. This is the timeline. This is the service level that you're supposed to give me. And if you're not giving me those things then I have recourse with a volunteer that becomes as Brian, as you mentioned, right. That's a personal conversation now, of eventually we might be talking about like your shortcomings as an actual volunteer. And that's not the realm we want to be getting into. Never. And and that's really why, I mean, that's why there's a thriving association management market. I mean, associations need options and they need options to execute on things quickly. And, you know, full-time employment represents a whole lot of added things particularly when many associations are needing to look at their revenue and their expenses. And so uh, there are always options out there in the vibrant association community for this. And it really, again, because I think we all acknowledge that we need to treat our volunteers with respect. We need to communicate with them. We need to show gratitude. We need to offer them motivation, but there will always be a limit to how hard and how much we can push on these individuals if we want them to remain engaged with the organization. Well, and there's no clear answer on like what should be a volunteer job versus what should be a staff job. Uh, There is so much gray in between. And sometimes it really comes down to the individual. You know, there are lots of examples in the association space of people volunteering to do jobs that we would consider staff positions. And that individual may have done an outstanding job, but when they retire, when they leave, when they move on, no other volunteer is going to do that. And so it, it, you've, again, it's that flexibility. You got to be ready to shift gears. We've hit on, some really good topics around, I think, especially time as we've kind of started to get towards some pieces that I think our volunteers are experiencing. And so recognizing that there's a limited amount of time that every volunteer can have. But I also think over the last few years, especially, I think a lot of our volunteers have reevaluated their time, right? So they've really go back to priority, right? There was a priority for the association, but I also think there's a personal priority for a lot of our volunteers who've said either I was doing too much I need to back it off or before I commit to anything, I want to know what it is and how much time is going to be there. So as we think about how we sell volunteer opportunities, are there good approaches, 
key phrases, things that are important to really focus on when you're talking about that with a potential volunteer or even a current volunteer, right? As you're trying to potentially retain them. Uh, I do. And I think this goes back to something that Brian mentioned earlier, which is the pandemic wasn't the start of the decrease in the number of volunteers, but it was an accelerant. And I think it was an accelerant because it forced all of us. And I think the three of us can look inside. We see it happening in our volunteers to really consider how we're spending our time. And so we need to be able to engage with these individuals in a way that's meaningful to them, that's clear, that helps them understand the purpose, and that we meet them where they are. Whether that's they want to do a blog that they spend two hours on, or they do want to get on a leadership pathway to be a president. But part of that is simply the engagement piece and how we can use technology and staff to really get at that. There was a really great session at ICON about measuring engagement scores for different volunteers and members and sort of how you can massage that data so you can then go maybe recruit and approach individuals who maybe aren't the ones already doing it. And so part of this is also, I think, bringing in fresh perspectives because that energizes everyone. Yeah, I think I think that finding that enthusiasm and that passion is going to be the big key. I think pre-pandemic, a lot of people did a lot of things because they'd always been doing it and they were in a routine. I've seen it myself. There was stuff I was doing pre-pandemic that it wasn't super fun. I didn't find it super rewarding, but I've been doing it for a while. So I kept doing it. Once I stopped, that's it. I'm not going back. And I know I've seen that in other volunteers that once the routine is broke, they're not reestablishing it. So now it's more incumbent on us to provide that information on here's what we're expecting you to do. Here's what we always say what you're going to get out of it, but it may not be what you're going to get out of it. It's what you're going to be able to get back. We talked about that. It's not always someone wants to get something for themselves, but they still have to understand like what their contribution is going to mean. Um, and I think that information component just having a membership committee and people joining it because people join membership committees, that's gone. There's got to be clear expectations, clear objectives, you know, clear progress made. People aren't going to just do it to do it anymore. As we look towards the future um, and recognizing that we're not going to solve right volunteer problems uh, in today's podcast by any means, where would you recommend that association professionals start how do they begin this conversation about reevaluating their volunteer opportunities or their volunteer experiences? Um, and how do they start to put some of those things into motion? I've got a number of things on that one, but I'm going to stick with one. I think, I think the flexibility component. I think being very flexible and willing to really look at what will get you where you want to go. I'm going to use an example of a lot of groups have chapters. We have chapters with all these officers and bank accounts and all this structure. And all those people want to do is get together and have dinner once a month. We don't need a chapter. We just need a social club. We don't need to file 990s for them. We don't need bank accounts. We can really simplify it. And so just because we've always had chapters doesn't mean we need to always have chapters, but it doesn't mean we have to wipe it all out. We can do it in a different way that fills the objectives with the least amount of effort by both staff and volunteers. And I think there's a lot of opportunities where 
we don't want to get rid of the whole thing, but boy, we could get rid of some structure and some overhead to make it easier, not just on staff, but on the volunteers too. So they're getting more um, out of it. Uh, I've heard the phrase, uh, more mission, less management. And I think that's really key. Let's reduce the management up what we're fulfilling on the mission. I, I love that, Brian. And I think I agree with all of that. And to help facilitate the change, I would say try fail, fail fast, right? Find some ways to implement some of these smaller changes that don't involve governance, right? Because that that's an automatic, and um, don't let me um, send the message um, to anybody that I think governance is unimportant, <laughs> but it, um, it can slow things down. So find ways to pilot new things, you know, speaking to what you just mentioned, Brian, on micro levels, so that then you can go back and say, look at the results. We'd like to try this differently. So thinking about your example about the social club and the chapters, you know, ACSM is dealing with that a little bit with subject matter, you know, birds of a feather groups, right? So we've got interest groups, regional chapters, strategic health initiatives, and then committees. And for some of these topics, there's one for all of those. And so there's these kind of four disparate groups they are all doing their thing. It's a lot of overhead for staff. Um, they're maybe not communicating with each other as well as they should when they really all are all invested in the same end outcome. And they maybe have shared research interests. So they maybe do just want to have dinner or a drink at annual meeting. And so how can we set up a social event for all four of them at next year's annual meeting, and then come back and say, we'd like to collapse two of these groups into the other two. So um, I like the idea of sort of failing fast with these experiments to then drive the bigger change, because I think that's more manageable for everybody. Katie, that's a really good point. There was a, a really good keynote at ASAE that uh, this year that talked about experimentation. And I think one of the big concepts on that is have have a, a, a group of projects or even just one where you know and your board knows this is an experiment. So if it fails, it's not a big deal. We're trying stuff out. We're not we're not allocating the whole budget to it. We're we're allocating a small portion. We've decided ahead that this is our experimental fund and we're going to put our experiments over here when they succeed outstanding. And when they don't, no big deal. We'll go on to the next one. Um, because that fail fast and and just being willing to fail like everything doesn't have to succeed just know going in what your what your uh, goals are for it and if it doesn't hit know that we went in thinking that eh, it might work it might not it's okay we'll try the next thing yeah it's like seeing what kind of lessons we can learn almost from the for-profit world uh kind of doing a full circle for katie right like i feel like some for-profit companies are willing to say yeah, let's try it for three months. And then as soon as it doesn't work, they're like, all right, no big deal, cut it. And let's try something new. Um, because I think that is sometimes what has had associations be slow or so slow to change is that we want to make sure it's perfect before it launches, right? We're not willing to put it out there if it's not been alpha, beta, and all the way through, you know, omega tested. You know, once it gets to the end, then we're good. But then by the time we've completed the build out of it, right? The problem looks different now. Um, and so it, it doesn't, the solution doesn't work anymore. So I think those are 
really great ways to be thinking about starting this conversation around volunteerism. Again, recognizing that every association is going to look a little bit different. Um, and so continuing to use, I think, our own network, right, ISAE, our resources within ASAE as well, um, to kind of continue to explore these conversations. Thank you both for this conversation. This has been really great. I always enjoy these selfishly because I, I feel like I get a lot of good information out of these, these discussions too that I can apply. You know, obviously you both are really great resources for folks that could continue to maybe pick your brain on these conversations. So if somebody wanted to touch base with you, uh, how would they get in touch with you? Thanks, Nick. Um, I am on LinkedIn, Katie Feltman, or you're more than welcome to send me an email at kfeltman at acsm.org. Um, and like Nick, I learn as much from these um, discussions as I feel, probably I learn more than I contribute. So I welcome the collaborations and communications. And it's honestly one of the reasons why um, I really love being part of ISAE is because I feel like we're such a we're a small little agile group. We can find each other and make these connections. And I always just learn, learn greatly from them. Same here. I, that's what I love about ISA, these uh, group conversations and just hearing other people's perspectives that make something new pop in your head is wonderful. Um, if you want to reach out to me, my email address is blewis at uh, rayborn.com, or I am also on LinkedIn under Brian Lewis. Uh, and I'd love to continue the conversation because uh, this stuff around volunteerism is just so interesting. Well, thanks again to you both for being here with us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of You Should Hear This. If you have any questions you'd like answered or future topics you'd like us to explore, please send us an email at info at isae.org.